want you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22, and I want us to look at a familiar portion of Scripture that we hear off-quoted when it comes to child-rearing and, and discipline, and I, I think we need to really seriously concern all of what the Scripture says about this matter, and I want us to look at this verse tonight, just the verse 6 of Proverbs chapter 22. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, there are many interpretations of this verse. We might ask from the outset, of, is this a blank uh, guarantee? Uh, if this is done, if you train up a child the way you go, is it saying that he will never depart from it? What are the ramifications? What does train up mean? What does way mean? And so I think we need to take this verse apart. Because it's so vitally important. The Lord's word is, is uh, the final authority on all areas. Let me say this about the Proverbs. Just as in, in general, the Proverbs state truths and principles that are generally true if people um, obey them. For example, we might look at the verse, uh, obey your parents, as we read in Ephesians tonight. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is the first commandment with promise that your days may be long on earth. Does that mean that every person who is obedient as a child lives to be 100 years old? I used to ask my mother, how did you get to be 90 plus years old? She said, for one thing, I obeyed my parents. Well, that's part of it, and it is a general principle, but we know that not every uh, obedient person lives to be 100 years old. It does mean if a, if a child obeys his parents, he's more likely not to be in places where he shouldn't be, where things could happen, where uh, danger and and uh, harm could be. And so it, the, these are general principles that certainly apply, and the Lord's uh, grace is there. There's so many things that we, we take in consideration there. I confess to you, I have looked at several different uh, commentaries to see what people say about this verse. And as always, I start with people who have been dead a long time. I have more confidence in them. Although there are many good men who are alive <laughs> God bless us, you know, they're trying to, to do what they can. But I find the most trustworthy are those who were born many, many years ago. And Charles Bridges, who pastored in the early 1800s, and his, you'd, be, you'd be surprised how few commentaries there are on the Proverbs. Uh, and when you go to look in, in libraries, and, and there are not uh, too many being churned out on that book today, but in the past, the Puritan writers, they wrote on every word of every verse of the Scriptures, and he wrote this, the hopes of at least two generations hang upon this mo most important rule. How can we look on a child without thoughtful anxiety? An existence is commenced for eternity. The whole universe does not afford an object of deeper interest. It is an arrow in the hand of a mighty man, a most powerful instrument of good or evil, according to the direction that is given to it. Remember, we saw in the verse in Psalm 127, verse 4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children, are the children of the youth. Well, I think we can see from the outset, whatever this verse is saying, and I don't believe it's shrouded in mystery, I think we do need to look at all the uh, angles and areas of it, but whatever it's saying, it all hangs upon the door to understanding. It hangs upon the hinges of the very first word. Train. And not just train, but train up. We know that this, 
in front of every child, every person lies two ways. The way he would go or wants to go or is inclined to go if left alone, if not intervened, if not interceded, the way of the natural state, the innate sinful way. Again, another Proverbs comes to mind. The, there is a way that seemeth right, feels right to the flesh. There's a way that seemeth right to man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Another proverb, 29 verse 15, a child left to himself without any intervention, without any training, will bring his mother shame. Left to his own way, left to his own bent, his own proclivity, left in the condition in which he was born. And secondly, not only are there two ways, two, two different directions that every person has before them from beginning at birth, there is the way that he should go. Uh, the, there is the broad way which leads to destruction and eternal death and the narrow way which leads to life in heaven. Every child is born, I must remind us, on the wrong way. They're born headed in the wrong direction. They're all born on the broad way. They are following Adam to hell. This is evidenced by rebellion. It begins early. You... Parents, those of you who have had children will know that you don't have to teach them to sin, uh, to do wrong. It comes with the DNA. It comes with the package. And it may not be as evidence immediately. However, um, it, it doesn't take long before the, the, the sinful nature to kick in. But this is evidenced by rebellion. And as we look in our own lives, sin and death. Here at the door... Of this verse, Solomon wisely instructs us about the way. Train up a child in the way he should go. Certainly, this training then involves more than just intellectual growth or more than just education, as important as those things are. And it involves more than teaching little ones Bible facts and songs and, and taking them to Sunday school. It's much more than all of those things. Sadly, many parents believe in the humanistic theory that a newborn baby is a blank slate. That's the, the feeling of many people, that this baby can be anything written upon that blank slate, that, that the parents somehow can program their baby or their child in the way they want them to go or the way they think that they should go. Some have the idea that a child is like a lump of clay, on a potter's wheel, and you can just make out of that child whatever you want to, no matter how good and noble those intents may be. But a good place to begin in looking at this, and let me just interject here, the human author of the proverb is Solomon. And we know that Solomon astray, didn't he, in his life and made a grievous shipwreck of the faith. Many believe that Solomon did come back to the Lord and they, they point to the last verses of Ecclesiastes which certainly do seem to indicate that. But even in Solomon's life, there's no guarantee that, and some would say, well, if, he did, if that is true, he did come back, but there's no guarantee. He was reared right. He was taught the things of the Lord. He was in a, a believing household and Solomon strayed, didn't he? So this is no blank check, no absolute guarantee. A good place to begin is with the first family. If we want to look into family's uh, DNA this evening, at the first parents, Adam and Eve. 
And their firstborn son, Cain. We don't have to go very far to ask the question, what did Cain become? Cain became, the first child became a murderer. So, so, so soon from the beginning, creating of parents who were born with no sin, they fell. It didn't take any time. The very first baby born on earth was born with a sinful nature to the degree that he could become a murderer. Adam and Eve didn't train him to be a killer, did they? Where did that come from? Where did that horrible, heinous action come from that he would not only be a murderer, but he killed his brother? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from his nature, his way, his bent, if you will. It came with the baby. It came with the package, this natural DNA from his sinfulness. Cain and Abel weren't anything alike, by the way. The Lord doesn't have a Xerox copy machine copying out uh, children. There were were opposites, weren't they? And and though they had the exact same parents, and and Abel loved the Lord. The, The Bible holds him up in the hall of faith as a man to be... Uh, emulated by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice more acceptable to the Lord. He walked in the way of righteousness. Same home, same parents, two different ways, two different directions. Cain followed the path to destruction. There's no indication that Cain ever returned. We last hear of him uh, when he's saying, this is too more than I can bear, you know, this... God appeals to, to Cain himself. Cain, if you do right, there's, there's a sin offering. You know, you can bring the right offering. They both were instructed, and the Lord intervenes with his grace and appeals to Cain, and, and Cain walks over the, the gracious invitation of the Lord. And, and even the warning, Cain, sin lies at the door. Satan has a snare for you if you go and... And go your own way. Cain would not go the way of the Lord. Why? His bent was crooked. Think of the first set of twins recorded in the Bible. Uh, There may be others, but the ones that we're looking at, thinking of, of Jacob and Esau, polar opposites, weren't they? Those of you who have children, you think of them, they are all absolutely different. Now, one thing we know for certain is that our Heavenly Father knows us. That beautiful psalm, Psalm 139, where we receive such comfort there. That You ought to refer to that, that psalm often. And parents who are raising children on those dark days when you just scratch your hair or pull it out or whatever, and there are days like that that will come, and you feel like a failure, and that they'll never amount to anything. They'll never come to the Lord, and, and you feel like all your training is just for, for naught. Remember that they have a, a, a parent above you, a heavenly Father, who's gracious and knows them. O oh Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts from afar. Thou compass me or surround my path in my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. The problem is we're not perfect parents. There are none. We don't know all our children's ways. We can't see in the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We do the best we can, and we, I hope that you'll see tonight we should study them to find out what their bent is. They're, 
their interest in proclivities, not, not just including their sinful bent. That goes without saying. We've already put that on, out on the table, but I believe the verse means so much more than just that. In verse 13 of Psalm 139, for, the Bible says, For you have possessed my reins. In other words, the reins is the inward parts, the very most in, inward part of me. You covered or made me in my mother's womb. And then he goes back before that and says that God designed him before he ever placed him in his mother's womb. And he comes to the, the, the conclusion, this is just too wonderful for me. It's too, too mind-boggling for me. And it ought to bring us to, to, to worship. Those, these, these verses should be taught, uh, parents, to, to your children from an early age, that God does not make mistakes. He didn't get it wrong. You see, that's the lie of Satan, and that's the, the predominant lie that young people are being taught today, that, that you can't trust God because he's messed up with you. Look in how you feel, what you want to be or what you want to do, and you're trapped. But that's not the case at all. Before your child was an embryo at conception, he or she had already been designed by the creator of the universe in heaven. As the song says, molded by the master's loving hands. God designed our inner organs and even our inner man, the real eternal you, our personalities, our abilities, our disabilities, our temperaments. Uh, And by the way, this psalm is one of the stalwart pillars of scripture that contradicts the suppositions and declarations of the, the pro-abortionist. The Bible says that we're, in verse 15 of Psalm 139, curiously wrought. Do you know that word, uh, that phrase in the Hebrew means we were embroidered? Think of my grandmother Lamb constantly was doing handwork. She did handmade lace, tatting. She did all of her pillowcases had tatting on them. Everything in her house was that way. All the little doilies, and things, and uh, uh, comforters, and what all, I don't even know what all you call the things, but she, her hands were always, if she wasn't reading, she was knitting, tatting, embroidering. Now, when I think of embroidery work or needlework, I think of the most meticulous work on earth. I mean, I can't imagine that you do something and then there's a picture when you get through with it. But that's the connotation when, when you're curiously wrought, that, that you see this tender picture of God embroidering a beautiful tapestry of the life that he wants us to have. And like a tapestry knits the threads of our lives together. The psalmist declares because of all this, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me. O God, how great is the sum of them. The scientist Henry Morris writes a striking description that that word curiously wrought, he says it is a striking description of the double helical DNA molecular program which organized part by part the beautiful structure of the whole infant. See how intricate we are. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5, As thou knowest not what is the way of the spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Well, this is too marvelous for us, isn't it? It's too glorious and too mysterious of how the Lord brings life into being. Our God is working from a master plan. 
Nothing is by haphazard. Nothing by accident is those who would reject God uh, would, would say that this is all by, by accident, just by happenstance. The very words of Scripture tell us exactly this intricate plan from an all-wise God. He's a, the wisest parent who has ever been or ever will be. And if a parent is wise, he will look to the, the master plan this God who's done so much to, to make his will known to us and in designing us and, and, and look into the, the master plan of the word of God and pray. Oh, Lord, pray for your child. Ask for wisdom. That should be a daily prayer. Lord, give me wisdom in leading and guiding this, this child. Uh, study their personality. Seek God's face and, and spend time with the Lord, talking to the Lord about your child. And this all takes time and careful reflection. As parents, you can see tendencies in your child. You see yourself in your child. You see your mate in your child. You see that side of the family in your child. And we we, we may laugh at that, but we do see things. And and there are fears, aren't there, humanly speaking. Uh, We we know the mistakes that we made. And our hard-headedness, for example, maybe, are are other things that, that we are concerned about and so we this takes careful reflection and pouring our hearts out before the lord study your child and and watch what they do and what they say and what they don't say and what they don't do and notice the character traits the tendencies do they work with their hands you know as a little person taking things apart which sometimes is just very frustrating for a parent, but the wise parent will study and say, well, you know, that there may be some tendency there, some proclivity there to, to be someone who does things with their hands, uh, who, who wants to see how things work. You know, it's much more important to notice that than to have a neat house. There, there's some mothers, for example, or fathers, so uh, concentrated on having a perfect house, and, and I understand there's, there's a place for everything and all that, but... The thing at hand, uh, the child may be working on a project or something. And it may be just a, a precursor of what they're going to do with their life. And we're so focused on having everything perfectly neat. And you may be thwarting a bent, a way that God has placed in them that will be the direction that he wants to go as, as far as what they're going to do with their life. And so we need to study the child to see if those things, do they, do they work with their hands? Are they creative? Do they like to build are, are you cultivating those activities? Sometimes the frustration of parent comes, parenting comes when we don't look at those things, when we don't see them, and we're trying to mold them into something we want them to be without actually not seeing what, is, what are their abilities, where are they headed with this. And that's, again, that's not to say they shouldn't pick it up when they're through or, or, or keep, have neatness, but, but there's much more to it than just that. Are you looking for opportunities to train, to reinforce the bent are the way that God has programmed them to go. If they, if we need to, it takes time to figure these things out. Uh, sometimes a messy kid is a creative kid, and uh, that's going to be part of their reality. Now, as I've said, they still have to be taught to clean up and to, to clean up the mess, but ask God to reveal to you his plan and find out the direction that God has programmed them to go in, not the career that you may have chosen for them or that you enjoy or that, that you want them to do, but, but what, what God has, has chosen. We all 
uh, innately have bents as well. You do. You recognize them in your own life, but a child may not even know that's what the Lord is doing or what, how, they're, how they're leaning. So we're all born, we know, as, with a sinful nature. And we see down in verse 15 of, of uh, Proverbs chapter 22, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. Proverbs 51 verse 5, David said, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Iniquity means I received a sinful nature from my parents and my bent, my tendency towards sin. I was born with a sinful bent. My nature uh, and my makeup was born in that way. It's not saying that his conception was sinful or wrong, but that but our sinful nature comes from our parents. It's passed on with the color of our eyes and, and everything else that, that we get from our parents, and our, as well as our physical DNA. Psalm 58, verse 2 says, Yea, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Well, the, the Holy Spirit puts it in very vivid pictures of the, the depravity of a, even an infant. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder that stoppeth his, her ear, which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. I think even Christian parents can be misled here. We really don't know or, or perceive that the battle is here not for them to conform to, to us or not to embarrass us, but that their soul is at stake. This is a heart matter. And the most important thing is, is their heart turned toward the Lord and where the Holy Spirit can speak to them and regenerate them. Again, Dr. Henry Morris notes on this verse, train up is from a Hebrew word normally translated dedicate or consecrate. And immediately when we hear those words, our mind goes to Hannah who prayed in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. She said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and give unto thy handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. And then down in verse 27, she says, For this child I prayed when the Lord did give him, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. What an interesting way of putting it. Hannah lending her child to the Lord. We would say, do we lend anything to the Lord? I mean, God gives us everything we have has been given to us. It's actually on loan to us. But here, Hannah reverses it and says, you've loaned him to me, and so I'm going to loan him back to you. It's this reciprocal idea that this sacred trust that God's given me, all I can do, Lord, I must give him back to you because he's yours. Now, and as we know in, in Samuel's life, Hannah literally did that, didn't she? As soon as he was old enough to be away, uh, she took him to the temple to be reared for the Lord in a very unique way. Now, certainly, this heart's desire of lending the child to the, to the Lord should be the intent of every, in the heart of every Christian parent. And as in Hannah's case, this is far more than just a ceremony where we come before the church and, and bring our children, as, as sweet as that may be. That's just the outward picture of what we're determining to do just like in a wedding ceremony marriage is far more than saying i do in blowing out candles and you know exchanging rings and the dedication of a child is a lifelong eternal process 
Lord, I'm setting this child apart for you. Give me the wisdom and instruction to know how to lead and guide and, and teach him or her. Think of that word train. Train up a child. When you think of training, you think of a meticulous and tedious process. Of, of training, for example, a musician or an athlete or, or, or in school, just going through the, the different grades of school and mastering all that is mastered as you go up through school or the practice, the study, the going over and over and over of lessons and repetition and patience and all that goes into just, just learning. Now, there are various opinions about that phrase, as I've already alluded to, according to his way, train up a child in the way that he should go. Literally, it means that according to his way and the way intended for him by his God-given abilities and interest. So, parents, those things should not be ignored. They should be guided and developed and prayed over and shown and all that, that, that needs to go into that. But foolish is the parent that ignores that child's way or interests, or personalities, all those things that God has put there, literally according to his capacities, another way of putting it. And that begins at the beginning of his way, from the very uh, coming into the world. And as we mentioned, parents should study their children, understand these things in their personality and their nature, and then dedicate him or her to that sacred cause. And when the child when is grown, may he make the optimum contribution to the kingdom of God. You know, the Lord has loaned them to us for his honor and glory. And we should not get in the way. After all, as we have seen, they are the Lord's, aren't they? Children are in heritage of the Lord. Notice it does not say in the way that the parent wants them to go. Train up the child in the way he should go, his own bent, his own way. I read where a man greeted a, a mother on the street with her two young sons, one on each side, and one was about 10 years old and the other was about six. And, and the man looked and pointed and said, How old is your son? And she said, Which one, the lawyer or the doctor? She was training them in the way that she wanted them to go. She'd already picked it out. This one's the doctor and that one's the lawyer. Well, we laugh at that, but there's so much there. The word train up also has the connotation in the Hebrew. It can mean all that I've just said, but it also has the connotation of in the mouth. And the picture is of the Hebrew midwife after helping with the, the delivery of the child would often, I've read, stick her index finger into a little saucer where either dates or, or grapes or uh, had been mushed up and there's a, a liquid of grapes or dates and she dips her finger into that little saucer and puts it in the, the infant's mouth and massages its gum and the palate and, and tongue to start the, the sucking, uh, nursing uh, sensation and also to cleanse the mouth from, from childbirth, to, to set the palate and the, the mouth for what it should do. He should eat, shouldn't he? That's the way that child is going to have to go. And so it shows how important, how necessary it is that that was the custom of the Hebrew uh, nursemaid. The idea was to create a thirst and to help instigate uh, nursing. Chuck Swindoll, in his book on family life, quotes Albert Siegel from an article in the Stanford Observer. It must have been several years ago. I can't imagine the Stanford Observer publishing what I'm about to read. I assure you that your child, Charles Swindoll writes, has evil bents. 
you must cooperate with the good, but the bad calls for counteraction. If you ignore dealing with the bad, you are in serious trouble. And he says, I'm not alone in my warning. Dr. Albert Siegel wrote recently in the Stanford Observer, when it comes to rearing children, every society is only 20 years away from barbarism. 20 years is all we have to accomplish the task of civilizing the infants who are born into our midst each year. These savages know nothing of our language, our culture, our religion, our values, our customs, our interpersonal relationships. The infant is totally ignorant about communism, fascism, democracy, civil rights, the rights of the minority as contrasted with the prerogatives of the majority, respect or decency or honesty or customs or conventions and manners. The barbarian must be tamed if civilization is to survive. Then he quotes this from the Minnesota Crime Commission, released a report many years ago, and he says, every, which said every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny these and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murder if he was not so helpless. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer. And if you read those words, Dr. Swindoll writes, and think that your youngster is excluded, you make a graver error. Every child has the potential of becoming a study in hostility. This is so important. And then he goes on, you may have read or heard the comparison and contrast of just two families from American history. And he gives the, the recounting, and I've read uh, biographies and, of uh, Jonathan Edwards and the Edwards family uh, that would prove this to be true. And he says, the father of Jonathan Edwards was a minister and his mother was the daughter of a minister. Among their descendants of Jonathan and his, Edwards and his wife, were 14 presidents of colleges, more than 100 college professors, more than 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 60 physicians, and more than 100 clergymen, missionaries, and theology professors, and about 60 authors. There's scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of his family among its chief promoters. Such is the product of one American Christian family reared under the most favorable conditions. The contrast is presented in the Duke's family, which could not be made to study and would not work, and is said to have cost the state of New York a million dollars, and this was years ago. Their entire record is one of crime. And he goes on to give, among their 1,200 known descendants, 310 were professional thieves, 400 were physically wrecked by their own wickedness. 60 were habitually criminals. Uh, 130 were convicted criminals. 35 were victims, and he goes on in much more graphic detail. Only 20 ever learned a trade, and 10 of those 
uh, wound up in the state prison, and this notorious family produced seven murderers. Well, from the outset, we see there's two ways. There's the way a child should go, and there's a way that the child will go if left to himself. There's the way that the child is programmed with gifts and abilities, uh, intellectual capacities, things that God has placed within them that the wise parent will study in the, this the thing of rearing the Lord. The principles of the Lord are un- negotiable, non-negotiable, but how that child is dealt with, each child is an individual, and the wise parent will look at that and study that. May the Lord give us grace to train up these children, not just the ones in our family, but those in our church family that we love and are praying over in our prayer meeting tonight. And every week I, I hear people praying for the children of our church. It always touches my heart. They pray for the nursery and all the young ones and the, the ones that come in on the buses, our Sunday school children, and uh, all that, that are listening and hearing and watching and observing We pray, all of us, our duty is to pray. We can go before the Lord in the throne of grace and pray and intervene and intercede on behalf of these children and the children of others. And let's do that just now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word. And your ways are mysterious to us, and yet you've shown us your word. I pray for uh, all of these children, Lord, in our midst. And Lord, for grown children, they never stop being our children. I pray for every parent, every family here. Oh, Lord, do your work in every heart. We pray that you'd give parents and grandparents and Sunday school teachers and all of us, Lord, wisdom and discernment, the ability to say the right thing and to point these teens and college students and youngsters in the right direction. Oh, Holy Spirit of God, work on every heart and show them the things that have been put into their hearts and lives. Lord, and help them when they're old not to depart from it. May they follow you all the days of their life. Oh, Lord, we pray for every home here. Now, Lord, as we approach your table, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would show us the things of Christ and draw us near you as we uh, celebrate this memorial meal that pictures what you've done for us on the cross. In Jesus' name.